Good morning. Well, we're continuing into Mark chapter 13 this morning. And if you could have your Bible open at that right page, I'm sure you will find it most helpful. There's a lot going on in this chapter and we're going to be moving at a good pace because my aim is to cover the whole thing in just two parts, starting this week and finishing next week. So before we begin, let's ask the Lord for help. Father, you have given us this, your word, to bless us with truth and life. And so we ask that you would speak to each of us this morning through what we learn together. Open our eyes, soften our hearts and apply your word to us by your spirit so that we might be taught, corrected, rebuked and trained in righteousness. And so that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen. Well, there are some dates that I guess we all know, or at least we should know. Big, important days or dates in history. If we were doing this together, I would test you to see how well you do on this. And some of you, at least I hope most of you, would almost certainly know 1066. Well, that was the Norman Conquest and the Battle of Hastings. Pretty important, really, as it was the last time that a foreign power conquered Britain and took over, shaping our future. What about 1666? Well, I guess most of you know that was the fire of London, the Great Fire of London, which changed the face of our capital city. What about 1969? The moon landing. And of course, 1975. Well, that was the year that Andy was born. Don't forget. Actually, for Christians, there are a few other dates that really ought to be in our heads too. I wonder if you know these ones. How about AD 313? Well, that was the date of something called the Edict of Milan. It was when Roman state persecution against Christians ended. Constantine the Great became the first Christian Roman Emperor and Christianity itself as a religion was legalised for the first time in the Empire. Unfortunately that also paved the way of the, for the joining of church and state together. Very important stuff actually. And then how about 325 AD? That was the date of the Council of Nicaea. I guess some of you maybe knew that. The beginning of 125, 126 years that it took to get some clarity on what the scriptures said about the divinity of Christ and the Trinity itself. How about 1054? That was the date of what's known as the Great Schism. East and West, the church in the East and West fell out over loads of issues really, but mostly over something they called the filioque clause and they went their separate ways that's why we had the the roman catholic church and the eastern orthodox church big big things these and of course uh, another date perhaps you might know is 1517 when martin luther supposedly nailed his 95 thesis to the door of the castle church in wittenberg signifying the start of the reformation really important stuff but how about this as one final date that we ought to know? AD 
70. That was the year that Jerusalem was utterly obliterated. War broke out between Rome and the Jewish people in AD 66. I mean, trouble had been brewing for a long time. And the last stronghold of the Jews was the city of Jerusalem. Because it was their last refuge, what resulted was a multitude of people coming to the city. We're told that zealots, thieves and murderers, all kinds of rebels flocked to Jerusalem and chaos and anarchy reigned for a number of years. We know a lot of the details of this because the uh, historian Josephus saw much of it firsthand. He was kind of working for the Romans and he was there and he published his eyewitness accounts only five years after this devastation happened. On top of the war with Rome, civil wars broke out in the city between those rival parties that had come there. On one occasion, the zealots tortured and murdered 12,000 of the city's nobles and leading citizens. Bodies, were told, piled up in the streets and were thrown over the walls. The whole city was in a shambles. In the year 70, Nero finally died and General Vespasian was recalled from Jerusalem to become the new emperor in Rome. And he was replaced in Judea by his son, General Titus. And he was the one that laid siege to Jerusalem itself. Thousands actually at this time had flocked to the city for Passover and it was full to bursting point. You could hardly move for people. Soon, with the siege being set, food ran out and the citizens actually resorted to cannibalism. Those who tried to leave in search of food were captured by the Roman armies who crucified them in plain sight of the city walls. Up to as many as 500 were crucified each day in sight of the city. The walls were finally breached and all hell broke loose at that point. The soldiers butchered civilians and set the city and the temple ablaze. Josephus calculated that about 1.1 million Jews died in this siege and in the slaughter that followed. And remember, populations of cities weren't as big in those days as they are today. That is a staggering number. Josephus comments that they ran everyone through whom they met with and obstructed the very lanes with dead bodies and made the whole city run down with blood to such a degree indeed that the fire of many of the houses was quenched with these men's blood. He continues, Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple. It was thoroughly laid even to the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was left nothing to make those that came thither believe that it had ever been inhabited. Some 37 years earlier, Jesus had left the temple after the last visit he would ever make there. We've been reading about it, haven't we? During that visit, he had clashed repeatedly with the different parties of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, who hated him 
and only wanted his destruction. And as he and his disciples were leaving, Mark tells us in verse 1, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Well, that was a massive claim to make. It would have been utterly shocking. It seems like it left the disciples dumbstruck all the way through their walk then over to the Mount of Olives. The temple, you see, was the religious heart and soul, the focal point of the nation of Israel. It's where their identity was. It was their one true connection to God. And Jesus had just predicted its complete obliteration. Now, this morning, we're going to walk through the first 27 verses of chapter 13. We're going to do it at quite a pace. It's a controversial chapter. There are many opinions about what it all means. And doubtless, some of you will have quite strongly held convictions about how it should be understood and read. I myself grew up in a home where I was taught a very different view from the one I've become persuaded by. And I would ask then that this morning you give it a hearing without immediately dismissing it because you hold a different view. This is a go-to passage when thinking about the return of Christ and the end of the world. And there are a number of different schemes that you could hold to, all of which would fall within the realm of orthodoxy. So don't worry, we're not going to chuck you out of the church for this. There are a few that, that don't. Uh, but, but I doubt any of you hold those. Whatever you might believe about the details in this chapter, the critical thing, and please hear me on this, the critical thing that we all must believe is that Jesus is coming back. He will appear in the clouds and personally and physically and visibly return and bring the kingdom of God to its ordained consummation. That much is certain. Outside of those broad details, we can, and I'm sure we do, have many different opinions. It's okay to disagree. I still love you if you disagree with me, and I hope that you still love me. And I do welcome feedback if you want to discuss anything further. When it comes to this prophecy, which is recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, there are, broadly speaking, two ways to interpret the things being said here. You'll hear these terms bandied about, so I'm going to use them and I'm going to explain what they mean. First, there is the what's called the futurist view. This holds that the contents of Jesus's prophecy here from verses five all the way through to 37 is all yet to come. It's all referring to future events, namely to the second coming of Christ. Alternatively, there is what's called the preterist view from the Latin word for past, which holds that these things have already happened. They are all past events, events of history, mostly from the first century AD. The view that I take is actually a mixture of the two of those, and I hope all will become clear as we walk through it together. So having said that, let's continue to put this chapter into its immediate context, because that's very important. 
Jesus's whole experience in the temple has been a bad one, hasn't it? He has condemned the activity that takes place there and he has brutally exposed and vividly condemned with colourful language the hypocrisy of the religious leaders who have failed to recognise who he is, the Messiah. Instead of welcoming him as God's king, they have rejected him and their influence has spread to the people. So the people don't know what to make of Jesus either. They're misleading the people. You'll recall that Jesus told the parable of the tenants in the vineyard at the beginning of chapter 12 to describe their God-rejecting and murderous intentions towards him. That story finished with the landowner, the owner of the vineyard, returning to kill the tenants and to give the vineyard over to others. He brings those wretches to a wretched end, as Matthew puts it. Last week, we looked at Jesus's condemnation again of the scribes, where he finishes in verse 40, if you take a look, with the words, such men, these hypocrites, will be punished most severely. There's judgment looming in the air, isn't there? Matthew records an extended version of this speech against the teachers of the law in chapter 23 of his gospel, where just before leaving the temple, Jesus says to them, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. Wow. And then his tone seemed to change to sorrow as he continued in Matthew's gospel. We move to verse 37 there where Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you not see me again till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now keep all of that in mind, because that's the backdrop of this prophecy Jesus is about to make in chapter 13 here. Jesus has now left the temple and we should recognise the significance of that. God in flesh has left the temple. His glory has departed from the temple. The temple's been condemned. Do not put your hope here anymore. And so Jesus and his disciples now cross the valley on the east of the city and they sit on a hill called the Mount of Olives. And they're gazing across at these magnificent buildings of the temple. Man looks at the outward appearance and that's what his disciples are doing. And it's spectacular. But the Son of God has looked at the heart. The leaves have promised fruit on the fig tree, but the branches are bare and it is cursed. So let's now sit with the disciples as they ask their questions, questions that are burning on their hearts at this moment. Take a look at verse three. 
as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled? See, Jesus has made a troubling claim and they want to know the details. When will these things happen? That is the destruction of the temple that Jesus has just talked about. And what will be the signs to tell us that it's about to happen? Well, as we look at how Jesus replies, we really do need then to do our best to hear him through the ears of the disciples who are sitting there with him. Imagine you're standing in front of a glass door with writing all over the front. Can you picture that? And before you pass through that door, the writing is clear and it's easy to read, isn't it? But once you've gone through to the other side and you're looking back at the door that's behind you, it takes a lot of work to make sense of the words. They're all backwards. Similarly, our view of what Jesus says here can be obscured by the fact that we are living in the 21st century and we're looking back with the other side of the door. And added to that, to add to the confusion, most of us have probably been exposed to all kinds of end times imagery over the years. But the reference point for the disciples is, is not that. Their reference point is largely the Old Testament part of the Bible with its particular imagery and phraseology and way of speaking. And what we need to do is we really need to bear in mind that fact as we proceed through this chapter. Firstly, for the disciples, if you speak about the destruction of the temple, you are speaking about the end of the world. They had no reason to put any time between the two events, the destruction of the temple, the return of the Son of Man, uh, you can see that they're basically asking those questions in Matthew 24 in his account of this. If the temple is destroyed, then the Messiah must be about to return and establish his kingdom. And so in his reply, Jesus must put a division between the two, and he does that purposely. I think that Jesus makes this clear by the kind of words he uses, the phrases he uses throughout this chapter, if you take a look. When in verse 5, all the way through to verse 31, he talks about these things, that time and those days, he's talking about something different from when he finally, in verse 32, talks about that day and hour. In that verse, he is certainly talking about his final return at the end of the age, but not until then. So let's see how it all hangs together then as we walk through it. In verses 5 to 13, we have a description of the days that lie ahead for the disciples themselves. That's why you see you all the way through the chapter. He's talking to them personally about things they will see and experience. Have a look at verse 5. Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. 
Everything Jesus lists here was characteristic of the next 37 years. The years between Jesus's ascension and the destruction of Jerusalem that we just heard about in AD 70. Josephus reports arrests of false prophets on a daily basis during the reign of Nero. Wars and conflicts abounded in the Roman Empire. Jews themselves were slaughtered by the thousands on many occasions. In Caesarea, 20,000 died. In Sothopolis, 13,000. In Alexandria, 50,000. In Damascus, 10,000. All kinds of battles as these wars raged. Due to their rebellion against Caligula in AD 30, when the Jews refused to erect a statue to his honour, they then lived in constant fear of imminent war. And uh, so much so they neglected to till the land and it put them in problems uh, for crops. Tacitus, the historian, writing the history of this era, lists Germany, Africa, Thrace, Gaul, Parthia, Britain and Armenia as trouble spots and war zones in the empire. Well, we know that famines came. You can read about one such famine in Acts chapter 11, verse 29, which tells of the relief sent from Antioch to the church in Judea. Three other famines occurred during the reign of Claudius in AD 41 to 54. And there was a very bad famine in Rome in 51. Earthquakes during this period struck Crete and Smyrna, Miletus, Chios, Samos, Apamea, Campania and Rome. And Laodicea, Hierapolis and Colossae, the cities, were devastated by one massive quake in AD 60. You can also read about earthquakes in the book of Acts 2, can't you? When Paul and Silas are in prison. But Jesus assures his disciples that these things must happen. They are not, says Jesus, the end. That is, the end of the temple. They are, in fact, just the beginning of birth pains. In other words, don't let any of these things waylay you or cause you undue concern or distract you from what you should be doing. They're just characteristic of the age. Instead, Jesus' disciples are supposed to be engaged in the activity that's described in verses 9 to 13. Take a look. Verses 9 to 13 it could almost be a summary lifted right out of the book of Acts, couldn't they? Jesus' disciples set about fulfilling the great commission to take the gospel out into the world. And they're met with opposition and violent persecution, aren't they? And verse 10, if you take a look at that, is almost a strap line for the book of Acts, isn't it? And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. You know, even in the second chapter of Acts, we read that at Pentecost, the first big gospel preach in Jerusalem, we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 5. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And staggeringly, even before AD 70, Paul could write to the church in Colossae saying, the gospel that you heard has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Of course, obviously, there were many nations, for example, the continents of America and Australia, who had not yet heard the gospel. 
And we still need to take the gospel to some nations also. But from the perspective of the disciples standing in front of the glass door, seeing the spread of the gospel throughout all the nations of the Roman world would have been breathtaking. What a fast spread of the church. But none of these things are yet a sign that the end is coming. They are just characteristic of the days leading up to AD 70. Get on with your ministry, says Jesus. But what follows is a sign. Before we get into this, you will have noticed that we don't really have time in our two short sessions in the morning, Sunday mornings to do justice to the contents of what follows. And some people love this stuff and others will just get so bogged down. I will put up some midweek content uh, online looking at some of the details and answering the obvious objections either this week or next week. And if you can't wait for them, then let me recommend this book here by Sam Storms, which I found very helpful. But back to our text and the sign is in verse 14. So take a look at that. Jesus says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Clearly something staggeringly awful, an abomination will appear to signal the imminent destruction, the desolation of the temple. The description, the abomination that causes desolation, is taken directly from the Old Testament book of Daniel. And I take it that when Mark says the reader, the reader here is someone familiar with that particular book, someone who's read it. In Daniel, it is used to describe the desecration of the temple by the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes, who in 168 BC plundered the temple and slaughtered 40,000 Jews. But he was only getting started. He then proceeded to sacrifice a pig on the altar at the temple. Then he made a broth from the unclean flesh and had it sprinkled all over the grounds. He finished by erecting an image to Zeus above the altar in the Jerusalem temple. It was a day that the Jews had never forgotten. But this second abomination Jesus talks about would make it seem almost insignificant with its horror. The sign that the disciples are looking for is actually spelled out for us by Luke in his gospel when he talks about this prophecy. Luke, you see, is writing to a Gentile audience just like you and me who would not be familiar with the book of Daniel. They're not the reader. So he describes the sign in this way. It's in Luke chapter 21, verse 20. He says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. It seems quite obvious then that this is the Roman general Titus in AD 70. And Jesus's instructions in verses 14 through to 20 are to flee when you see this sign. To get well away from Judea. Jesus says don't even stop and pack. When you see the Roman army arrive, it is time to run. These will be days, according to verses 21 to 23, when people will be looking for a Messiah, desperate for a Messiah to save them. 
And there'll be plenty of candidates waiting to take advantage. So the disciples need to be on guard, says Jesus. Don't be taken in by these people. Remember, this is not yet the end of the age. This is not Jesus returning at this point. So keep your head and be alert. In verses 24 to 27, we get a very interesting paragraph. And it describes the days immediately following on from that fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. What does it mean that the stars will fall from the sky and the heavens be shaken? Well, we're not to take that literally, obviously. It's poetic language. And its meaning becomes clearer again when you look at the Old Testament like the disciples would have done. The falling of dynasties and world powers are often described in terms of cosmic upheaval. Take, for example, Babylon in Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah writes this. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Or Ezekiel talking about the fall of Egypt. When I snuff you out, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I'll cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights of the heaven I will darken over you. I'll bring darkness over the land, declares the Lord. Do you see this imagery? Put simply, this is the judgment that falls on Jerusalem. Israel, as a political entity, came to an end that year. And verse 26 takes us back to our main point this morning. Take a look at verse 26. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and from the ends of the heavens. We are, I think, conditioned to read this as the return of Christ. And that's unfortunate, but it is for good reason, because 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 does assure us, doesn't it, that he will indeed come down from heaven and we will meet him in the air. I'm not putting any doubt on that at all. But that's not actually what we have here, if you take a look at it carefully. This is actually another reference to the book of Daniel, where we read that in his vision he saw, quote, one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. The coming here is not a coming to earth, but a coming into the throne room of heaven. It's going the other direction. Where Daniel goes on to tell us that the Son of Man is given power and authority to rule over the nations. The kingdom of Israel might have been dissolved in AD 70, but in its place, the kingdom of the Son of Man, the Messiah, is established. Just as the temple gives way to Jesus as the only way to access God, so too the kingdom of Israel gives way to the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ, his Messiah. For there is no other way to God, is there, than Jesus? And there doesn't need to be. We do not need a temple today because Jesus Christ himself suffered on the cross to pay our debt and to bring us to God. He offered the last and the only sacrifice necessary for your and my sins. 
When Jesus stands on trial before the high priest in just a few hours time, actually, from where we're talking here, in chapter 14 of Mark, he will be asked by the chief priest himself, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus will reply, I am. But he follows it with this. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. For this very generation, there and then in the first century, the high priest's generation, Annas's generation, would live to see the vindication of Jesus's true identity. Something that their hard hearts constantly refused to see, despite all the evidence during Jesus's ministry. And they will see it when he himself sends this terrible judgment upon them. The events of AD 70 proclaim loud and clear throughout history that Jesus is indeed reigning. And therefore, we are to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, just as verse 24 tells us. As through his messengers, he says, for that's what the word angels means, through us, he gathers his elect from every corner of the earth into his church. It's a wonderful prophecy, isn't it? Well, I'm sorry to rush through this morning, but my recording time is actually limited and my camera is going to turn off in a minute. But don't miss next week as we finish this chapter off and it gets even more exciting. Uh, but until then, let's pray and let's finish off. Father, we thank you for this reminder that our King reigns. All authority has been given to King Jesus and it is under that authority that we, your people, are to go and tell the world about his salvation. We thank you for coming to save us and we joyfully await your imminent return because for us to live is Christ but to die is great gain. And so in that hope we pray, come Lord Jesus. Amen.